Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at www.schwepp.net. And this week, we are very pleased to have Professor Peter Adamson, Professor of Philosophy at the LMU in Munich, and the presenter of the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps podcast with us to talk about Plato. So Peter, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me on to talk about one of my very favorite philosophers. So I thought a good way to start a conversation here would be to bring up a kind of tension that could be seen between the two accounts of Plato that we gave in our podcasts. So someone who listens to your podcast on Plato, and it's I highly recommend they do, you have a big chunk of episodes on Socrates and Plato. And your Plato, often speaking through the mouthpiece of Socrates, but let's just say Plato, he has a lot of arguments, logoi. He argues for positions, and you spend a lot of time talking about, does this argument make sense? Does it hold water? What about possible objections? So on and so forth. He tries to explain stuff, right? He argues for positions. Now, my Plato has a lot more mythoi, a lot more quasi-mythological stories, like the likely story of the Timaeus or the, the winged souls in the Phaedrus and et cetera, et cetera. He oftentimes seems to be trying to confuse us or trying to make us work rather than explaining. So, for example, he'll give a very cryptic mathematical um, description Discussion and you're expected to kind of draw a diagram out for yourself in order to figure out what he's on about, you know, like the nuptial number in the Republic is a classic example of that. So we have Logoi versus Muthoi. We have a lot of explanation versus a lot of seemingly intentionally baffling or challenging his readers. So listeners to both podcasts could be forgiven to think we're talking about two totally different people. What do you make of this? Well, the first thing to say about that, I guess, would be that these are actually only two of many Plato's that one could have. So you could imagine someone doing a history of literature podcast, let's say, and they would certainly need to talk about Plato's dialogues as one of the monuments of literature from ancient Greece. In fact, in late antiquity, Plato was often held up as the greatest or one of the greatest prose stylists in Greek. And one reason we have Plato's dialogues is that, I mean, the reason we have Plato's dialogues is, of course, that they were copied in Byzantium by scribes. And I think probably the reason they did that was less because of Plato's insight into mysteries, like your podcast has him, or insight into arguments, as my podcast has him. I think their main interest was in him was as a great uh, stylist of Greek. So they were really into this idea of like Attic Greek perfect classical Greek, and Plato was one of the most uh, admired representatives of that tradition. So that would be another Plato. There's the Plato of the historians who tells us a lot about Athenian history. Um, people try to figure out the story of Socrates from Plato. The historian of mathematics can take a lot out of Plato. That historian is maybe closer to your interests, right? So his Plato and your Plato overlap quite a bit, uh, and so on. So there, there are many Platos. I think that your Plato and my Plato do actually have at least one thing in common, though, which is something you just mentioned, which is this idea about having to work. So the idea that the meaning of the dialogues or the reason why you should be reading them isn't necessarily all there on the surface, because even hardcore analytic philosophers, and I'm by no means the hardest core analytic philosopher, but that's the general trend of my approach, for sure. 
even uh, a hardcore analytic philosopher, obviously when they're delving into the dialogues and trying to write something about Plato, they have to find something in there that isn't just on the surface, right? And if you think about reading someone like Aristotle, in a way that's easy because if you read a page of Aristotle, often your first reaction will be, I have no idea what he's talking about, right? Because it's just very difficult. Like if you read the metaphysics, it's just hard to see what's going on. With Plato, since it's this very polished literary artifact, an analytic philosopher is trying to extract maybe hidden premises or some analytic interpreters think that Plato's intentionally giving us bad arguments and we're supposed to see the mistake so actually that kind of reading against the text or at least trying to extract things that aren't in the text at first glance that's something that the esoteric approach to plato and the analytic approach to plato have in common well i'm glad you mentioned the word esoteric this is a beloved word on our podcast but as we've seen in our discussions of plato you can say plato was an esoteric writer but then you immediately have to explain in exactly what sense you mean that by because i'd say the majority of interpreters of plato through time have interpreted him as an esotericist, say in the basic sense that he's saying things that aren't immediately apparent on the surface, and they're only going to be apparent to some select group. So be it the late Platonist philosopher like Plotinus, who has the kind of key to understanding it, because he's a, a good philosopher, or later modern scholars like the Tübingen Schule, who just have figured him out, right? He has a kind of coded uh, story going on. It does seem like sometimes he's begging us to read him that way. I mean, would you agree with this? Like he does make these coy references. For example, take the divided line in the Republic where he, he says there's this line is divided into four parts. Each part represents a type of cognition. He gives us the three bottommost types of cognition and he describes what they do in, in, in some detail. And then with the fourth, he kind of says what it is, but he's a little bit vague and he kind of trails off and changes the subject, right? And you, when you read things like that, you just think, ah, he's, he's inviting us to kind of fill in the gaps there, right? So he does things like this, which make me think, okay, it's no wonder people read him as an esotericist, whether he is or not. But I wonder what your take would be on this. I kind of feel like, well, you as an analytic philosopher, I guess, are going to agree that Plato's thought develops considerably over time. Yeah, right? for sure. Yeah. So roughly we can divide him up into early, middle, and late dialogues. And there are cogent things we can say about each period, even though no one can nail down an exact chronology. And do you think part of the reason people have striven to find esoteric meanings in Plato is simply because if you read him as a unitary philosopher who never changes his mind you immediately run into all kinds of weird contradictions and you have to find a deeper meaning in order to make make it all agree. Yeah, so actually, um, the one thing that maybe would be helpful to think about here is that when we talk about somehow needing a key to unlock the text, I think there's a very fundamental question or maybe distinction between two ways of approaching Plato with that thought in mind. One is that the key to unlock the text is in the text. And if by the text we mean all of Plato's dialogues, then you might think, okay, well, to understand what's going on in the Timaeus, I, I need to have read the Republic, let's say. And actually, that in a way is just true, and no one can deny it, because the Timaeus begins with a summary of the Republic. So Plato's saying, look, this is a sequel, <laughs> right? So anyone who said, well, reading the Republic is irrelevant to understanding the Timaeus, that's just a stupid thing to say. But of course, that's a long way from saying Plato never changed his mind. It's one system. 
that's being revealed in little bits or from different perspectives from one dialogue to the next. That, of course, is what the Neoplatonists claim to think, so the late antique interpreters of Plato. In fact, they tend to be very interested in certain dialogues and not very interested in others. So you could question their commitment to this really holistic approach to Plato where every single dialogue gets fitted into one system. But anyway, that's one approach. So one approach would be to say we read Plato through Plato, the way that antique interpreters used to say that they read Homer through Homer, and later Aristotelian commentators said they read Aristotle through Aristotle. So you're using the text to interpret the text. Another possibility would be that the key is off the page. In other words, that to understand what's going on in the dialogues, you basically, you should have been there. <laughs> you should have been in the academy. And um, this is really where the Tübingen school gets going. So the Tübingen school takes their approach to Plato, not from the dialogues really, but from what Aristotle says about Plato, especially. And they're very struck by the fact that what Aristotle says about what Plato taught in the academy and in this supposed lecture that he gave on the good. Um, and it's, by the way, not only in Aristotle that we hear about this, it's also in later ancient authors. Right? Aristoxenus, no? Right. Um, and even Simplicius, so really late commentators, talk about this material and add new information that we wouldn't have had otherwise. So the Tübingen approach says, well, since we have all this additional information, let's bring that to bear on the dialogues and basically give readings of the dialogues we would never have been able to give if we didn't have all this stuff about the unwritten doctrines. So here I would say, I mean, leaving aside the analytic approach, which is obviously much more committed to like reading the text from within the text. But if you even think about uh, what you might call two esotericist approaches, you have the Straussians who are convinced that Plato often didn't say what he wanted to clearly, and that you have to kind of tease it out, maybe on the basis of things he doesn't say, but could have, or other hints, or um, sometimes structural features of the text are taken by the Straussians to be more important than the actual sentences, so to speak, like divisions or chunks of the text, how many are there, uh, numerological analysis, this kind of thing. So that's one kind of esotericism, but that's very different from the kind of esotericism that says that the only way to understand the dialogue would be to have access to some other additional information, right? So weirdly, even though I'm very far from being a Straussian, I have more in common with them than with the Tübingen school because I'm at least committed to the idea that the dialogues in general, and in fact, probably each dialogue in and of itself is a text that can be successfully interpreted using the resources that the dialogue is giving you. And in fact, I tend to prefer the approach where you basically read each dialogue as a finished, polished, well-constructed work, think about it as a piece. And then if you want, you can also think about how it relates to the other dialogues. And then if you really want, you can go on to relate that to what we know about Plato from other sources. Um, for, for me, you start with just, you know, the Republic or the Carmides or whatever platonic dialogue it is. And then you try to understand basically its internal structure, argumentation, purpose, and then you start bringing in these additional layers of interpretation on top of that. That's my approach. Now, you're basically not buying the Turingian Schule uh, interpretation, and many people don't, it must well, be said. Well, it's not, it's not so much that. I mean, I think, so obviously Aristotle says a bunch of stuff about Plato, and probably he's talking about Specifus and uh, Xenocrates quite a bit as well. It's right. hard to tell which bits of his report about the academy are about which people. But he didn't just make that all up, 
right? So there's no. undoubtedly a bunch of stuff in Aristotle and in later authors that you can legitimately describe as unwritten doctrines in the sense that they're written by Aristotle, <laughs> but not yeah. by Plato, right? And I don't, I actually don't um, reject out of hand the idea that a dialogue like the Philebus, which let's face it is pretty damn puzzling, if you just read it, <laughs> or maybe the Parmenides, or, you know, there's some really, really strange platonic dialogues, uh, the last person to deny that. And I don't, I wouldn't reject out of hand the fundamental idea of the tubing in school, which is that you might be able to use the Aristotelian materials to understand those dialogues. But let's just say that it's not my first move. My first move is to try to understand the dialogue as a well-written piece of philosophy, because that's clear what the dialogues are. And I think it would be disappointing if the dialogue can only be appreciated or correctly understood if you have some key that's not there. So it's almost like, you know, a video game that you can't win because there's no level where you can get the special thing that allows you to unlock the door. Your, your approach, which is almost like an Aristotelian middle way in a sense between extremes of interpretation, like so Chernus on the one side saying the dialogues and only the dialogues, there will be nothing else. Right. And then, um, Giovanni Reale or, or uh, Geiser or someone like that saying, no, 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 no. Like the unwritten dialogues are the key to the whole thing. And you're saying, well, no, we should take everything into account, but we can read the dialogues as what they blatantly are, which is incredibly honed and crafted, published materials that Plato obviously wanted. He yeah. wrote and then he wanted the world to say, okay, maybe the Critias isn't finished, but basically this holds true for the dialogues, right? Yeah. And in fact, going back to the word esoteric, it's worth bearing in mind that we do have a great ancient philosopher who wrote works that are officially esoteric, namely Aristotle. Oh my goodness, tell us more. <laughs> because uh, esoteric can mean um, intended for the use of the inner school, right? As opposed to published or exoteric. It's obviously very unclear what publishing means in this social context, right? Because all, all texts are handwritten. So there's no, I mean, there's no printing yeah. press either. But if you think about the fact that um, in the Phaedo, we hear of Socrates buying a book about philosophy. Um, so it's by Anaxagoras. You can imagine that Plato's dialogues were maybe, as it were, on sale down at the Agora, down in the marketplace. Mm. And Aristotle wrote some exoteric works that are lost. And yep. they were apparently much more like Plato's dialogues. And the books that we have by Aristotle are esoteric but maybe not in the Schwepp sense. <laughs> I mean, the first appearance of the word exoterikos in Greek is in relation to the Aristotelian corpus. Right. And the first appearance of esoterikos that still survives is actually Galen, I believe. So it's very late, but it's it's clearly in opposition to this earlier term exoterikos. It, it just naturally flows from it in the way Greek words are constructed. So it's clear that the idea was around in Aristotle's time of esoteric, exoteric. But yeah, it has nothing to do with let's say the arcane, but it definitely has to do with privileging of knowledge or um, appropriateness of knowledge, let's say. Yeah. And, and it's one of the great ironies of history that the esoteric works of Aristotle survive and the exoteric works, the ones that were for the mass audience, don't survive. It's yeah. very interesting. So what I would want to emphasize about this is that if you were worried that either Plato or Aristotle wrote texts that are literally not possible for us to understand anymore because we don't have the key then it's actually i actually don't think that's true of either of them but if i were prepared to believe that about one or the other of them i would believe it about aristotle 
or at least some passages in Aristotle, because Aristotle's, it's not clear how Aristotle's texts came to be, but they seem mm. to have something to do with a teaching context. And there's certainly texts that were circulated among his circle in some sense. Whereas I take the dialogues to be things that were written for a broader public and therefore to be texts that you're supposed to be able to appreciate without having met Plato, for example. Right. So for a non-specialist audience, some scholars suggest that Aristotle's works are in, in effect lecture notes. Right. And may, maybe his students wrote them and he didn't even write them or maybe a combination of the two or whatever. No one knows for sure. But they're written in this extremely stripped down style, which would lend itself to being lecture notes where he's going to flesh it out in the actual context. That's why it's so hard to interpret because he never gives examples. He never gives. Um, let me explain what I mean. He just has these incredibly dense, often incredibly dense um, postulate after postulate after postulate. Yeah. Like in, in the metaphysics, for example. Although um, I would say for both Plato and Aristotle, it's a bit more complicated than that because everything's always more complicated, right? But it's not that complicated. So all I want to say is that in Plato, for example, if you read, let's take the Euthyphro, everyone's favorite example of like a first dialogue you could hand to someone. You don't, mm. you, you don't read the Euthyphro and think for goodness sakes, what was that about? I have no idea what was going on there. No, it's like a very kind of engaging discussion between Socrates and this jerk, Euthyphro. And it's pretty clear what the issues are. I mean, not to say that it doesn't bear close interpretation and reading it does, but it's not mystifying. No. Whereas the Parmenides is completely perplexing, right? Yeah. So there's differences between dialogues. And it's the same with Aristotle, although the the works he wrote are very different. They're not dialogues. But if you take the metaphysics, which is your example, um, probably the metaphysics is actually not a work that Aristotle wrote, but it's a compilation of different writings. But let's take the middle books of the metaphysics, which, are, you know, it's just sentence after sentence after sentence where you think, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? It's very hard to see how the whole argument flows and so on. And if you contrast that, say, to the Nicomachean Ethics, which is very nice to read. You can hand it to undergraduates. They'll enjoy reading it to some extent, probably. Um, it's a very, very different reading experience than the metaphysics. And I don't think that that's just because ethics is easier than metaphysics or something. I think that it must be the case that the ethics and the metaphysics came to be written down in a rather different way, maybe for different audiences, or maybe we have more editorial intervention with the ethics than with the metaphysics. It's very unclear. But I think with both Plato and Aristotle, we should be alive to the possibility that we may have different kinds of texts in both of their corpora. And how do the, the platonic letters fit into this? Let's assume that the majority of them are authentic for argument's sake. We can, we can probably scratch out the second letter. Almost everyone will agree on that, except maybe hardcore esoteric readers of Plato who want to find Plato the Pythagorean, and then that's where you can find him in his full glory. Seventh letter, though, very problematic. Some people say yes, some people say no. And then those who say yes, some people say yes about the philosophic digression in the middle, and others say no about that bit. And so much hinges on that. So much interpretation. If you're if you're going to be a tubing and shula or not, it depends on that middle bit of the seventh letter, and then not the middle bit, but that one crucial bit where he talks about the the knowledge that can never be written down and stuff. Do you read the letters the same way as you read the dialogues as as for publication, polished compositions? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I agree with you that the seventh letter is the really crucial one here. So most of the letters are more interesting in terms of history and politics. And 
there is certainly a genre of ancient writing, which is the epistle, which in theory is for some guy, but in fact is for wider publication. And in fact, if you think about it even briefly, you'll see that if it's just a letter for some guy, the chances of our having it are basically nil, right? Mm. So they're either by Plato or they're not, but whoever they're by, they were written to be a literary work, which is in the form of an epistle. And this is a very common thing. So like Seneca's epistles or whatever, right? There's many ancient authors who just write in the form of epistles. So just to go back to the seventh letter, um, I mean, the seventh letter is the one that bears on the question we're asking here. I don't actually have a strong view on whether it's authentic or not, but I would say the following. This issue about, you know, can the truth be written down? Does Plato have a, a kind of worry about writing and the, having a kind of problematic status for him? The seventh letter is the most striking text on that issue, but there is also that issue arising in the dialogues itself, in particular in the Phaedrus. So actually, you could throw the seventh letter out as inauthentic, and you still can motivate a lot of these issues about, can the truth be written down? Does he have a kind of suspicion of writing? Does he want to distance himself from certain views by putting them in dialogue form? Or you could even think about something like, something that's a little bit more indirect, but think about the fact that a lot of the dialogues have a frame or even a frame within a frame or a frame within a frame within a frame where we're getting someone telling us about a conversation that Socrates had with someone, but they're repeating maybe a summary of, of someone who heard someone tell them yeah. what Socrates said to this guy, right? So, and I mean, there's no reason to do that unless what Plato is trying to do is somehow somehow make you reflect on the status of the report or the, the dialogue, right? So he's, he's clearly distancing us from the material. It's not clear what that means, but when you have something like that, plus you have the worries about writing in the Phaedrus, I think the seventh letter is just kind of the cherry on top of that. It's not the only evidence that Plato may have been trying to put his readers on alert that there's a problematic relationship between them and what they're reading. The question is why? And that you're, you're not venturing to answer. I'm not venturing to answer. Um, but, but thank you for pointing that out because that to me sums up another um, of these beautiful ironies that we get when we start to interpret Plato and his followers. One of the greatest literary creators of all time writing a bunch of attacks on writing and in some of his works seemingly calling the value of his entire work into question saying nothing i've said can be the truth because it's written and uh if you want to read more about why nothing written is can tell you the truth read this other dialogue by me it will also in written form tell you that nothing that is written can be the truth so there's this this just unresolved tension there in all of plato's writing which i find really wonderful Actually, if I can just throw one thing in there, a professor of mine from when I was a grad student at Notre Dame, David O'Connor, we were I was once talking to him about something you mentioned earlier in our conversation, which is this idea that Plato may change his mind or not, depending on how you read him. And he said that the idea that Plato just kind of has one thing that he wants to say and is saying it from different points of view, that that is fundamentally silly. <laughs> And would be like someone who thought that Shakespeare's plays are all somehow just trying to get the same thing across. And mm -hmm. first of all, I, I thought that was a very good point on that question about unitary readings of Plato. But second of all, ever since he said that to me, and this is now 
more than 20 years ago, I've always thought that a really good way of getting your head around how to read Plato and the issues that arise with Plato is think about him less like Aristotle or Kant and think about him more like Shakespeare. So what we have here is incredibly well-written literary works, which raise very deep issues about the human condition and all sorts of other things. Obviously, they're full of philosophical arguments, which Shakespeare's plays mostly aren't. But something that they have in common, Shakespeare's plays and Plato's dialogues, is that Shakespeare's plays are incredibly self-reflective about the nature of theater, drama, right? All the world's a stage, yada, 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 right? Every yeah. second line in Hamlet is about theater yeah. in some sense. There's a play in the play. There's and a play in the play. Just like a, a platonic frame narrative, exactly. a dialogue within a dialogue within exactly. a dialogue. Yeah, exactly right. And so, so often when people think about what Shakespeare is doing there, they think, well, he's kind of just raising the issue and sort of playing around with it. And I tend more towards that. I mean, if, if I were to sort of show my hand a little bit more, if you ask me why I think Plato does this sort of thing, it's not because he's trying to raise a flag for the clever reader to disbelieve everything and look for a real message that's buried in the text or something like that. I think what he's trying to do there is get you to think about things like the nature of language, the nature of testimony, the nature of witnessing something directly as opposed to hearing it from someone else. So I think he's raising, and I think often actually what he's doing with the frames of the dialogue is he's raising the same philosophical question that's discussed in the dialogue more obviously, like what the arguments are about. And he's giving you another angle on that by actually somehow writing it into the dialogue frame. So a good example of this would be the beginning of the Republic where Socrates is more or less forced to go to someone's house with sort of jokey threats of violence, yeah, right, and have the conversation that then becomes the Republic. Um, and it's, I think, just obvious that one of the things Plato is doing there is using the frame to raise already some of the issues that are then going to be thematized in the dialogue itself. Right. Or one, two, three, but where is the fourth at the beginning of Timaeus? Yeah. So... That's another classic and also has that very intriguing, but where's the fourth, that, that absent member. So you've got number, obviously very important in the text, but you've also got this, this absence and that can be interpreted in a number of interesting ways. I'm doing a seminar in Munich at the moment where we're talking about um, later Platonists and what they made of the Timaeus. And we were reading Proclus's commentary on the beginning of the Timaeus. And he says, oh yeah, one, two, three, where's the fourth? Well, of course, because the intelligible triad. <laughs> And so he thinks it's a reference to these um, divine principles. You'll get to Proclus eventually in your podcast. And when you get there, your listeners will presumably hear that he thinks that the um, divine world has this kind of triadic structure. So he thinks the opening line is a reference to that. And uh, I take it from your tone of voice that you don't entirely agree with him. Yeah, I mean, actually, w one thing that, uh, that I always think when I'm reading Proclus and his commentaries on the on Plato, because he has the most detailed commentaries on Plato that are, that survive from antiquity, the Timaeus and the Parmenides, especially. Mm -hmm. um, they're so detailed that they're in, both incredibly long, and don't even get halfway through the dialogue. <laughs> so we have this huge uh, exegetical work which mm -hmm. um, cuts off in the middle. But there's maybe two things that uh -huh. I really value about Proclus's commentary, or at least two things. One is that he has an attitude towards Plato that I totally agree with, which is that every single detail, every line, every word is carefully chosen and is there for a reason. 
So I don't think Plato makes mistakes. I mean, maybe he does. I mean, he's not a god, right? But I think you can valuably approach a platonic dialogue with the kind of exegetical assumption that everything is there for a reason and maybe for more than one reason. Again, yeah. think about Shakespeare. We don't we don't think, oh, well, this line is just kind of stupid or is a mistake. We think about it very carefully. It's poetry, right? And um, Plato's works are that dense. So that's one thing that I value about Proclus. And another thing, which you might be surprised to hear me say, <laughs> um, is that Proclus is really alive to something that almost no readers of Plato are alive to anymore, which is the relevance of pagan religion. Proclus assumes, just kind of as a matter of course, that, first of all, that, of course, Plato, like Pythagoras, Empedocles, and all his antique heroes, are very, very committed pagan polytheists who are constantly gesturing towards this pantheon of hierarchically arranged divinities that can also be explained using the rational principles of Neoplatonic metaphysics. So for him, if you get to a place in the dialogue where Plato says something, so for a good example would be the Mino, when he introduces the theory of recollection, Socrates says, I heard this from certain priests and priestesses. And if you're Proclus, when you read that, you think, ah, this has a very high level of truth. I'm upgrading this passage because I'm ascribing it to priests and priestesses, right? Modern day, especially analytic interpreters, think that it downgrades. They assume it's ironic. They assume that it's a joke, maybe. And I agree with Proclus. So I think that whenever pagan religion comes into the dialogues, it's like the queen has just turned up. You're supposed to stand up and think, ah. Or at least, if I don't think that, I at least think that we should take that possibility very seriously that that might be what's going on. We shouldn't, because we're all atheists or whatever um, nowadays, and we're certainly not pagans, and we don't believe in Zeus and Athena and sacrificing at the temple and so on. We have a tendency to just sort of sweep that all under the carpet or even take it to be ironic. Right. I take it to be, at least at first glance, I think with the first time you read it, you should bear in mind that for a Greek reader, the last thing they would do was just leap to the assumption that this is ironic or that it doesn't mean what it says, more likely they would think, oh, this has a kind of aura of religious revelation to it. And so it's to be upgraded epistemologically and not downgraded. So we're talking about passages like the praise of Mania in the Phaedrus, where he links it etymologically to Mantea in this sort of fanciful etymology. And he's saying it's, a, it's like prophecy and the gods actually speak through us when we have this. And this is true philosophy. Or in the Fido, when he says, well, I'm about to die. And as we all know, people on their deathbeds, like the swan of legend, speak oracular truth, right? And so here's a crazy cosmological myth about a giant shining dodecahedron um, with rivers inside it. But I agree with you. I don't think this could possibly be read as kind of a joke. If Plato is a careful writer, and both you and I agree that that's almost an understatement, even if he doesn't think he can express ultimate truths through writing, which he probably doesn't because writing isn't the world of forms, right? Maybe points us in the direction, but it's not it. Still, I think it's fair to say that he's not wasting his time. He's not writing all these, putting all this work in for what he thinks is a bunch of trash. He values what he's doing as a writer. And so the last thing I would think 
about those passages or the, the mysteries of Diotima, for example. And he says, now I'm going to get to the nub of the issue after building up and building up and building up throughout this dialogue, the symposium. Now I'm going to give you this kind of incredible account of the true mysteries of beauty. And I'm going to frame it in terms of this strange female figure who was a, a seeress. And she told me this. I don't know this through Logoi or whatever. This was told to me, and I'm going to reveal it to you now. So I think we, we agree that he's doing something. He's definitely flagging up what he's doing there as special yeah. knowledge. And in fact, uh, to go back to something else you mentioned earlier, the fact that many of the dialogues end in myths, um, which is something that I actually tried to spend more time on my on that in my podcast than most analytic philosophers probably would. And there is certainly a tendency among analytic readers of Plato, I'm not sure they would kind of admit to this if you asked them, but it's there anyway, to worry about why those myths are there. So a good example is the Republic. People often say, well, by the end of book nine of the Republic, there's 10 books, right? And by the end of book nine, he's given us philosophical reasons why it's better to be just than not be just. And then they are quite worried by the fact that in book 10, we have this eschatological myth not scatological, but eschatological, about what will happen to you in the afterlife, where the point seems to be at first glance that you're being threatened with retribution if you aren't just. And so people talk about it as, you know, Plato losing his nerve, or he doesn't trust the philosophy, he needs to scare you as well. But I don't think that's right at all. I think that it's something more like he's trying to show you that the entire universe is constructed with the same set of values that the human and the city are constructed and the universe is run by gods who impose ironclad laws of justice on everything in it including humans i think it's much more like that and th so the point of it being a myth is that he's reaching for a kind of literary device which will allow him to rise to a higher level of discourse to discuss this higher topic, namely the divine and how it relates to the universe, which is maybe some, something he thinks that you can't just kind of get to the bottom of using Socratic dialectical argumentation. And I think that it's really significant that a lot of the myths um, come at the ends of dialogue. So the Gorgias myth, for example, again, it comes at the end of the dialogue. The Phaedrus myth comes in the middle, so that's not a good example. But that, that idea that you end on a myth isn't like, okay, we had the serious philosophy and now here's stuff for kids. It's the yeah. reverse. It's the serious yeah. philosophy, and how is now here's the even more serious myth. Yeah, Fido, like Fido as well. Fido's another one. Yeah, exactly. Mm. This brings us to another question I wanted to ask you about, which probably should be um, the last part of our conversation. You've given us kind of an extreme example of the analytic philosopher who just isn't comfortable with these myths, either wants to ignore them. This is something you didn't mention, but this does happen a lot in works on Plato, where uh, they, they just aren't discussed, right? Or they're relegated to a footnote, a dismissive footnote, or in a better case scenario, the interpretation you've said is, you know, Plato here is kind of, he's adding color, or he's, you know, giving his readers a break after all the hard dialectic and whatever. He's, he's get, engaging in a delightful game on a vaguely philosophic subject. To me, this brings us to a question I really wanted to ask you about, which is to what degree when we're interpreting someone like Plato or when we're interpreting Plato, let's say, do we need to differentiate between first and second order uses of the term philosophy? So to unpack that a bit, a first order use of philosophy would be 
whenever Plato says, I'm doing philosophy, that's philosophy. And basically he says everything he is doing is philosophy, presumably. A second order use of the term would be we as modern scholars looking at Plato and saying, let's discuss Plato's philosophy in our philosophy department. Now, many modern scholars will separate out what they consider the philosophic material in Plato from the non-philosophic material in Plato. But if we're, take, if we're only wearing the hat of historian or philosopher rather than the hat of philosopher with an interest in history or whatever, that's just wrong. That's just an anachronistic, right? Like if Plato says it's philosophy, it's philosophy. That's it. He, he invented the genre in many ways. He gets to decide what's philosophy, not us. So I wonder if that sparks any comments in your mind. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think one thing I would say is that there's really been a change in what you might call the Plato industry if not during my career, then over the last 40, 50 years. I mean, if you go back to, let's say, the 60s, you have to bear in mind that the people who wanted to take Plato seriously, philosophically, were working in a situation where Plato wasn't really taken seriously at all, necessarily, by other philosophers. And the idea of what was good philosophy was maybe like ordinary language philosophy inspired by Wittgenstein, right? And then you you know, you've learned Greek because you studied classics in the UK and you want to kind of make a case for say philosophers taking Plato seriously and by the way, let's bear in mind what we're always really talking about here is money. We're always talking about will we hire a Plato scholar in our departments or will we yeah. have courses on Plato for our philosophy students. And so in the 60s and maybe 70s and even 80s to some extent, I, there, I think there was still a pretty strong tendency to try to make Plato fit into the framework of the philosophical discussions that were then current. And it was very hard to do that with the myth at the end of the Phaedo or the Gorgias or the Republic. And so they just don't mention it. But they had really good reasons for not mentioning it, which is that it would have been counterproductive to their actually very admirable project which was to get philosophers to take Plato seriously. And you can actually see, if, you're, if you want to see this happening in real time, you can see it happening nowadays with Neoplatonism. So a lot of Neoplatonic publications that are about Neoplatonism, including some of my own, are basically like, oh, don't worry about all that pagan theurgy and like wacky pagan Hellenic div divinities, all that stuff is over in the corner. Look away from that. Look at this little argument here about knowledge. This is really good, right? And so the point of that would be to get people who don't work on Neoplatonism to, to admit that it's philosophically interesting, effectively. And when right. you do that, you don't lead with, here's Proclus's etymological explanation of why the gods have their names, right? You yeah. lead with the stuff that will look like philosophy to them. Now, I think that with Plato, what's happened is that he's safe, right? So every significantly sized philosophy department has someone who can teach Plato. Uh, undergraduates would think it was weird if they went to study philosophy and there was no course on Plato. And so I think that even analytically trained Plato scholars, and here I'm one of them, right? So someone in my generation or certainly the generation that's coming up now, they would never dream of thinking, thinking, never mind saying, that some part of Plato was like just to be thrown away because it's not real philosophy. So I think that that, although what you just said is right, that there has been that tendency in English language literature on Plato, it's really something you'll find much more 
in work that's at least 20 years old, if not older, which, I mean, a lot of the stuff we think of when we think of famous books and articles about Plato is from that period. But what's going on now is much more nuanced, much more willing to take every single dialogue seriously, every part of every dialogue seriously, and bring it into contact with pretty much anything anyone can think of from the material in Aristotle we were mentioning before to the pre-Socratics to political context of the time. Because, I mean, again, to put it kind of cynically, uh, people are looking desperately for things to say about Plato that haven't already been said. And so the last thing they want to do is just consign a whole bunch of it to the we're not interested pile. Yeah, the Pla- the Plato industry is um, there is a uh, supply side choke because there's only so much Plato, <laughs> but you got to keep yeah. the product rolling off the assembly line. So. That's one good reason to think the seventh letter is genuine. There's oh, a, yeah. A little more Plato. <laughs> well, I, I interviewed a scholar earlier in my podcast who um, knew a gentleman called John Bremer, and he apparently manufactured a platonic text as part of his work and just sort of said, I found, I've discovered a new platonic text. So he even took matters into his own hand and enhanced the existing platonic yeah. corpus with I a think, new... I think that's really the way yeah. forward, actually. Yeah. We, need, we need more Aristotle and Plato. So. Well, one thing we could do if we wanted to be very kind of postmodern about it, God forbid, we could um, take many of the later pseudepigraphic things attributed to Plato and just say, no, these are Plato. So, for example, the Book of the Cow. Are you familiar with this? No. Liber Wakai. This is an Arabic magical text which involves, uh, well, we'll cover it in our podcast, So, I, but I'll just give a little tantalizing tidbit here. It involves a truly, truly gruesome ritual in which you hideously mutilate a cow, have sex with the hideously mutilated cow corpse, and through doing so, create a homunculus. And why do you want to create a homunculus? Because you want to then take the homunculus, the artificial human being, and use its body parts to do even more advanced magical practices. And by doing so, you can kill this human without committing a sin and ending up being punished by Allah. So you have a, a morally, like a replicant from Blade Runner, you have a, a, a fully human human that you can nevertheless chop up without accruing any moral problems. Now, we could take that as a platonic yeah. writing. I, next time I teach Plato in first year <laughs> undergraduate courses, I'll make sure to get that in. <laughs> but I, I just wanted to say that uh, I, I guess I might be kind of unusual in that, as I sometimes like to say, I'm an analytically trained historian of philosophy who's written articles about astrology. And so I am very committed to the idea that even if you have in some ways a pretty traditional sense of what philosophy is, like what are the questions that count as philosophy? You know, what is knowledge? How should we live? All these the favorite questions. That's really what all my work is on and that's what I focus on in the podcast. But I think that philosophers, historians of philosophy, should have a much more kind of open approach in terms of what kind of material they take seriously. So for example, I think that theological treatises are of interest to the historian of philosophy. I think that works of history writing could be of interest, works of literature. Uh, so for example, I covered Dante and Petrarch in my coverage of the, the 14th century in, in medieval philosophy in my podcast, but also um, a lot of the material that you're going to be covering in your series. So if you think about things like astrology, magic, the, the so-called occult, alchemy, 
these things are philosophically interesting in all kinds of ways, and it's not that hard to see why, right? So uh, an obvious case would be, if I can use astrology to know the future, what does that mean about determinism, right? Does that mean that there's no such thing as free will? And given how pervasive these beliefs and these types of texts were in ancient and medieval culture, I think there's actually a real failure of nerve on the part of a lot of historians of philosophy in refusing to take these things seriously and also forgetting that sometimes the same authors they are taking seriously wrote works on those topics or at least read them. We like the Newton of the Principia, but don't mention the, new, the alchemist Newton yeah. who wrote over a million words on alchemy because that's just really messing up our picture of uh, the development yeah. of science. Yeah, and Plato, or like Ptolemy, right? He writes about astronomy, but also writes about astrology. And in a way, um, as in so many other ways, Plato is really the original figure for this issue because in writing religiously inspired myths, if that's what they are, and integrating them into a single dialogue with a lot of pretty hardcore technical philosophical argumentation, he's throwing it in your face that philosophy wasn't just argument, 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 arguments. It's argument, 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 and here's a myth. And by the way, the whole thing comes in this very self-conscious literary package. And so Plato is, I think, um, not as exceptional as he may seem in this respect, but he is nonetheless, maybe in, in some ways the best example of a philosopher who forces you to broaden your conception of what might be part of philosophy. And since I, that's what I'm all about in a way, that's one of the reasons I love Plato. Peter Adamson, I could do this all day, but I know you have to get on. And there's a lot of really good stuff in that conversation for people to chew over. So I'll just thank you very much for being on the Schwepp. Much appreciated. Thank you. Yeah. And until next time, I would invite you and our audience to stay esoteric. Yeah.